Good morning, Christ Chapel. With Cody's permission, I'm using a chair because of a little bit of tendonitis, so uh, I'm going to relax, so you relax. It's great to see you. It's great to be back here and uh, uh, sharing God's Word with you. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, verses 20 to 31. It's it's on page uh, 917 in the Pew Bible, underneath your pew, if you didn't bring a copy of your own. One of the fun things that I get to do with my grandkids is uh, play games, and some of those games are word games, and uh, we as a family like to uh, entertain uh, uh, word pictures and word games and uh, play off of those, and uh, some of those uh, we uh, do as uh, adults as wordalism, uh, the wordle uh, you know, uh, puzzle every morning, uh, or the two minis that come with it in uh, the Times uh, uh, package, and that, that's a lot of fun. Uh, one of those things that has been circulating are what are called dad jokes. And a dad joke is something like this. Uh, some didn't think Cleopatra was pretty, uh, but that's not how Julius Caesar. <laughs> some of you will get that a little bit later. But one of those uh, plays on words is called a palindrome. Uh, some of you know that term. It comes from two Greek words, one meaning again, palin and the other from the verb to run. And it, uh, a palindrome is uh, a word that can be uh, spoken or spelled frontwards and backwards. Uh, it can be a word, it can be a phrase, it can be a sentence. For example, race car is one of those. Kayak is another one of those. A, r- a rotator is a third kind. And then noon. There are names like that, Bob, Anna, Abba. Uh, all of those are uh, palindromes which means they're spelled the same whether you go backwards or forwards. But a phrase can also be a palindrome, uh, never odd or even. If you spell that backwards, it says never odd or even. It can be a sentence or a question. Was it a cat, excuse me, was it a car or a cat I saw? That whole sentence is spelled the same whether you go frontwards or backwards. In our series, we're calling it the uh, Expecting the Unexpected and seeing the divine work of God in the in-between space. The title for our current series is sort of a catchy one, and maybe you, like me, as we're listening to these messages, are saying, what's expected and what's unexpected? Or is the unexpected the same thing that's the expected? And can that go backwards and forwards? And the title for the message this morning expect opposition with unexpected growth, it can also be played with as well, and that is there is there unexpected opposition while there is expected growth. You say, why do you say that? And I say that because of a a promise, a a very realistic promise that Jesus gave in uh, Matthew chapter 16, when he was talking to Peter and he says, Peter, you're a rock, Petros is the Greek word, but upon a Petra, and that's a collective noun, a whole quarry of stone, I'm going to build my church. And that parallels with Ephesians chapter 2, where he says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, plural, but Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. But I want to come back to that central promise. It's a very realistic promise. Uh, Jesus was not a pie-in-the-sky kind of a guy. 
He was a, a realist, and uh, in fact, he said, broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many folks are on that road. Narrow is the way, and narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life, and few there be that find it. That's a hard statement to swallow and believe by faith because Jesus, in essence, warned us and told us, you and I will never be in the majority as believers. There will always be a minority of people who are willing to accept Jesus Christ by faith in response to God's work of grace. And so he says, I will build my church. And then he says this, it's going to be in the context of opposition. It's going to be in the context of persecution. It's going to be in the context of confrontation. And he uses a phrase, the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, won't be able to stop what Jesus is going to do. And that's a phenomenal promise. The gates is a term that's used for authorities. They, the, the leaders of the city would meet in the city gates like they did in the book of Ruth and elsewhere. And so he's saying that I'm going to build my church and the gates, the authorities of hell are not going to be able to keep that from happening. So you and I, as we study the book of Acts, are actually seeing a prelude to church history for the last 2,000 years that Jesus Christ is continuing to build his church in spite of the competition, in spite of the opposition, in spite of the difficulties. The church, as you understand it in the New Testament, and as we're seeing it beginning to develop in the book of Acts in our series, is made up of Jews and Gentiles who share a common faith in Christ, as well as a miraculous unity in community explainable only by the supernatural work of the Spirit of God. That you and I would be here on a day like this from all of our backgrounds, from all of our sources of uh, origin, from all of our history of sin, from all of our geographical dislocation. Some of us came from Colorado, some of us came from California, we're getting more from California. Uh, all of us coming together as a body of Christ with a common faith in Christ and a unity and community that's built by the Holy Spirit of God, that's just simply phenomenal. It's the work of Jesus Christ. It's guided by God, empowered by the Spirit. From its very inception, the church has faced opposition from both religious as well as secular opponents to the gospel. And for over 2,000 years, it has survived and thrived. Beyond all of those proportions that were expected, it all started with uh, Jesus and 12 minus one disciples, 11, one reelected in Acts chapter one, those 12 with the 120 in the upper room. And now there is a church of Jesus Christ in the Middle East, in America, in China, in Latin America, and the biggest growth that's going on right now, unfortunately, is not in America, but is in the sub-Sahara part of Africa, in Latin America, in Asia. And we're watching hundreds of thousands of people come to Christ on a weekly basis like you would never believe. We don't see it quite like we saw it here in the country during the times of revival and evangelistic crusades, but it's happening all over the world. 
As Pastor Cody so insightfully observed a couple weeks ago, the expansion of the gospel recorded in Acts 8, 9, and 10 include the territories of those three sons, uh, you know, of, uh, of Noah, Ham, uh, and Jacob, and uh, Seth. Our passage today in Acts chapter 9 lies right at the heart of that set of chapters. You're going to need your Bible, and if you'll take out the sermon notes, we want to walk our way through that. But before I read, I want you to look at a paradigm <coughs> excuse me, that we see in your sermon notes. This, this is the paradigm for the book of Acts. It's also the, paragra- the paradigm for the Apostle Paul's life. There is witness... And of course, we saw that all the way back in Acts chapter 1, you will be my witnesses. There's witness, then there's reaction. Sometimes that reaction is misunderstanding. Are these men drunk? That was the first question. Then they were warned, don't speak about that name in public. Then they were arrested. They were released. They were arrested again. And then we see Stephen who dies at the hands of of uh, his opponents, while Saul, who becomes Paul, was standing there holding his robes. Then we see in chapter 12, James, one of the leaders, killed. So so we see all kinds of opposition. And then uh, sometimes there's amazement, sometimes there is belief, as we're going to see, but often there's hostility. In light of that, God steps in and there's divine protection. There's divine deliverance at times. There's sovereign uh, supernatural uh, superintendence that God is bringing things to pass. As Jesus says, I will build my church and nothing will stop it. It's an unstoppable mission of God through Jesus Christ and the Spirit on planet Earth. And as the result of that, there is expansion of the church. That's the basic paradigm. It's true in Acts, it's true with the Apostle Paul. And as we saw last Sunday in chapter 9 and verse 15, Paul was called when he was Saul, we'll interchange those terms because of habit, but he's not yet called Paul in the book yet, but if I say Paul, you'll know it's coming. Saul, who was called Paul, was chosen as an instrument by God, as verse 15 tells us, to be a a bearer, a carrier of that name, Jesus, to Gentiles in particular, to kings who are in authority, and to other people of Israel, the nation of Israel. He didn't stop having a mission to Israel, being a Jew, but God called him to a wider ministry in the nations, the Gentiles. And so we see that paradigm that Paul is called to, uh, to be a witness, but then it says this in verse 15, and to suffer for Christ's name. You know, that, that's not the, uh, the, the job uh, you know, description you would like to receive. Uh, you're going to have a phenomenal job, but it's also going to have a whole bunch of junk with it. God's calling you to ministry, but it's going to be a mess. That's the mission to which God called Paul. And as he introduces that in verse 15, in our section this morning, we're going to see too many examples of that same paradigm played out in the Apostle Paul. First in Damascus, and then in Jerusalem. I want you to follow along. We won't put it up on the screen, but I want you just to follow along in your Bibles or just listen if you don't have a Bible in front of you. And let me read verses 20 to 25. This is the section in Damascus. 
the first part of that. And immediately, don't miss this, immediately he, saw proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the Son of God. Now why this is important, this is the only time in the book of Acts where this title is used, but it's used right up front as, as an intentional purpose of Luke recording Paul's ministry to let you know, Saul now has no question in his mind that the one he met on the road to Damascus, Jesus, is the very Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And all who heard him were amazed, there's one of the reactions, and said, with, there's a big question here as you might expect, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And it's the name of Jesus. In other words, isn't this the same guy that was down in Jerusalem wreaking havoc among those who are claiming to be Christians? And has he not come here for this purpose? Remember, that's the first part of chapter 9. He was breathing out threatenings. He was asking for papers to extradite, you know, believers back to Jerusalem to put them on trial before the religious courts, to brown them before the chief priests. Isn't that the guy? So there's, don't, don't miss this, there's witness, and then there's question of credibility and wonderment, but contrast to that, Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So here's the second title, and we'll come back to these titles in a minute. But he is the Son of God, he is the Messiah, and Paul is, or Saul is preaching that in the synagogues of Damascus. Now there's a little interesting grammatical thing that uh, you won't see in English, but it's really fascinating. Let me, let me show it to you. That in that verse 22, where it says, by proving that Jesus was the Christ, there is no by in the original language. And, and in the original Greek, it says this, but Saul was strengthened much and confounded the Jews living in Damascus, proving Jesus was the Christ. Now, it doesn't change the meaning of what you have in your text but there's something that's really subtle here, and that is this. Paul is gaining strength by proving Jesus is the Messiah. When you do a study of the life of Christ, and when you do a study of the Old and the New Testament, and how people, or how those passages throughout the scriptures all point to Jesus. We saw it back in chapter 8 where uh, Philip is with the Ethiopian eunuch and beginning with Isaiah 53, he took him to Jesus. He brought him to Jesus. Paul is not young in the faith, but he's being strengthened as he continues to articulate that faith. And that's an incredible insight for you and for me that the more we understand the scriptures and the more we share those and the more we recite those and the more we hear them, there's something spiritually going on in our lives that strengthens us. And every time you share the gospel, whether uh, the person believes or not, it, there is a strengthening that takes place and a resolve that takes place that even if they say, I'm not interested, we still have that witness of the spirit coming through us that God is who he is and his word is, is true. So just a, a fun insight 
that the, the more you study, the more you grow. The more you share, the better you'll grow. And that not only will help you, but at times for an unbelieving audience, they'll be wonder, they'll be amazed, they'll reject, they'll be confounded. And Paul, duking it out with the Jews in the synagogue in Damascus, he, that's an, a fun word, of, he confounds them. They are stirred up. They have their priorities reinterpreted, and he is presenting Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. And if I can say that, not in a bad way, but take that. <laughs> and they are confounded by that. But proving that Jesus is the Messiah does two things. It strengthens the one who's speaking, and it confounds sometimes those who listen. It's a very realistic picture. God never gives us the painted picture. You share the four laws or you share the gospel and everybody's going to respond positively. That's never the picture of the scriptures. The paradigm is pretty much true. Sometimes there's amazement. Sometimes there's faith. Often there's hostility. And that goes back to what Jesus said in the upper room to his disciples the night before he died. He said, don't marvel if the world hates you. It hated me first. You know, in other words, don't be surprised. If you're identified with me, they're not going to like you just like I didn't like thee. If they didn't keep my word, they won't keep your word. Why? Because I showed them what sin looked like, and they didn't like that. I showed them what the Father said. They didn't believe that. Jesus is a realist. He gives us the real picture of what it's going to be like. But don't forget the, 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 the thread that comes through all of this, and that is that Jesus is building his church in spite of the opposition and it will be successful as he builds it, as he wants it. And all the authorities of hell ultimately won't be able to stop it. That's the nexus in between which we live, that connecting point. Now, I want to show you a map because what we have in this text is a chronological movement. And we're adding to what we saw last week where Paul comes from Jerusalem to Damascus. But uh, then he goes to Arabia for a period of time. He comes back to Damascus. That's not in the book of Acts. That's in the book of Galatians, as I'll read in a moment. And then he'll come back to Jerusalem, where we'll finish with our passage this morning. Acts chapter 9 gives us the Jerusalem to Damascus and back from Damascus to Jerusalem. But listen to Galatians chapter 1, <coughs> excuse me, verses 15 through 17. Just listen more. Paul is giving his own private testimony. And in fact, if you want a good testimony of Paul, uh, Philippians chapter 3 is one, but, Acts, uh, but Galatians chapters 1 and 2 give you his sort of his spiritual biography. And he says this in verse 15 of Galatians 1, that when he who had set me apart, I love these words, before I was born, you think God was at work? Yep. Who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Well, that's a mouthful, isn't it? He basically said, here's my salvation testimony right there. God was at work from eternity past before I was ever born, called me by his grace, revealed his son, and called me to preach. He said, I didn't immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. Now, he will go to Jerusalem, but not yet. But... I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus, where after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him for 15 days. So it's Galatians that gives us this little venture into Arabia. Uh, let me suggest something. Look at verse 23. It says, when many days passed, 
and that happens to be a period of three years. You say, how can this phrase, when many days pass, be a period of three years? Well, I've got a fun set of passages for you to put into your notes. Put down 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 38 and 39. We have an interesting phrase in Hebrew, yamim rabim is the phrase, many days. And it says this, and Shimei, who was one of the servants, said to King David, what you say is good, as my Lord the king has said, so uh, will your servant do. But Shimei lived in Jerusalem, watch this, many days, but it happened at the end of three years that two of Shimei's servants ran to Achish, son of Machal, king of Gath. So this phrase, many days, is a, a, is a colloquial term that can have mean a, an expanded period of time. Uh, that's true in 1 Kings 2, uh, as we put up on the screen, but let me just read one that's not on the screen, verse uh, 1 of chapter 18 of 1 Kings. You may want to write that one down. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. <laughs> so this concept of many days can mean, you know, multiple years. And we have that example in the Kings of that, that phrase, of many days being a period of about three years. So that matches what we have here. And so the Galatians 1, 15 to 17, the trip to Arabia and back for Paul is uh, in between verses 22 and 23. That's where that fits chronologically. You say, well, what was Saul doing when he was spending so much time in Arabia? Well, let me suggest he was attending DTS. <laughs> I'm not lying. Not Dallas Theological Seminary, but Desert Theological Seminary. Now think about this, Paul is a Jew well-trained in the scriptures, Hebrew of the Hebrews, tribe of Benjamin, Pharisee. He has a knowledge of the truth of the Old Testament, but he has been an opponent of its meaning, all up to the point of his conversion. And God has to teach him, and, and Paul has to mature, and that's why we're going to have a break at the end of this section, go back to Peter's ministry and not pick Paul up until later because there's a period of about 14 years while Paul is getting prepared for a lifetime of ministry. It takes proper preparation to be effective in ministry. And so what was he doing over there? He'd understood what the scripture said, but he didn't understand that those prophecies about Jesus were about Jesus. They were once vague, now he can connect the dots to Jesus. So just for fun, we asked them and our team put together on the back of your sermon notes, if you'll turn that over for a moment, on the left side of that is a whole series, <coughs> are you ready for this? Of Old Testament prophecies that find their fulfillment in Jesus. There's about 22 of them if I counted rightly. And that's a great little study to walk your way through this next week. I'm a professor for a lifetime, so there's your homework. <laughs> but let me tell you why that's so significant. All of those passages to an unbelieving Jew are still unfulfilled and vague in their minds. And they don't understand the connections that the Spirit of God will bring when a person comes to faith in Christ. All of that becomes fulfilled in Jesus. It's a phenomenal thing that happens. So the lights came on and Paul now sees those connections. Even the Apostle Paul 
needed to have adequate training to be effective in his mission of evangelism and church planting. But let's continue in our text. Look with me at verse 23. When many days had passed after that Arabian uh, sojourn, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot was made known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. (laughs) Nice guys. Here is one of their own countrymen, but because he's become a Christian, he is now persona non grata in Damascus. So they're ready to kill him. But his disciples, already people are coming to Christ under his ministry, his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now, we have a picture that maybe that is a little bit familiar to you, a little uh, incorrect, though it's a fun picture to re- realize, but they let him down through a window as you, as you study this passage in 2 Corinthians. Uh, but uh, be that as it may, those of us who've grown up in Sunday school, that's one of those visuals that you'll never forget, those stories that uh, are told. And you love that idea. Uh, here, that, that basket is, uh, he's, he's being let down in a basket to escape out of Damascus. And, and, and that's where we finish this text. Now, 2 Corinthians, when Paul is giving his uh, testimony of how much he's endured for the sake of the gospel as a defense to the Corinthians, in, in, verse, uh, in, in chapter 11, verses 32 to 30 and 32, excuse me, 32 and 33, he says, at Damascus, the governor, <coughs> excuse me, under King Eratos, was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through the window in the wall and escaped his hands. So Paul gets out of there. He escapes and now he comes back to Jerusalem. So the second half of our text records his experience in Jerusalem. Pick it up with me in verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted, and the Greek tense there is over and over, to join the disciples. Now watch this, Paul is in ministry. He comes to Jerusalem and they're afraid of him for they don't believe that he was a disciple. See, he was saved on the road to Damascus. He's been in Damascus. He's been in Arabia for a little while. He comes back. They have not been with him. He's not been with them. He comes to Jerusalem and they're thinking, no way. And he's trying to join the band of disciples, but they are afraid for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Notice, question of credibility, non-belief, no hostility, but stonewalling at least. And that's where a guy by the name of Barnabas, we've been introduced to him before, we'll see him more. He becomes a a, a critical player in the life of Paul and his ministry a bit later as well. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had, you know, it it had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly, don't miss that, in the name of Jesus. So as a result of Barnabas's intervention and encouragement, he went in and out among them, which is a phrase of fellowship, that he, he's, he's in and out with them. There's, there's interaction and interchange with them in Jerusalem, preaching boldly like he did up in Damascus in the city of Jerusalem in the name of the Lord. And as he spoke and disputed among the Hellenists, that word disputed is the same word that was used when Stephen and the Hellenists back in chapter six and seven uh, had a confrontation that resulted in Stephen's death. So here is Paul in Jerusalem disputing with the Hellenists, 
but they were seeking to kill him as well. And when the brothers, I love this, we saw that last week in Cody's tender heart, brother Saul. (laughs) When the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea, which is a coastal city, and sent him off to Tarsus. And as you saw on the map, that's, that's, that's back where Saul's hometown. Now again, you see this basic paradigm of witness, reaction, amazement, belief, question, hostility, divine protection, and expansion. Now that's the text. But, but what do we take away from that? Let me suggest a couple of things very quickly. Number one, the identity and authority of Jesus The identity and therefore the authority of Jesus is the core of the gospel message. The core of the gospel message. There's four titles in this passage for Jesus. One is Jesus, one is the Son of God, one is the Christ, and the fourth one is the Lord. Jesus speaks of his saving activity. In fact, that's what his name means, Savior, in verse 20. In verse 20, the Son of God That's his essential deity. That's the only time it's used in the book of Acts, as we said before. In verse 22, uh, it's Christ. That's his functional ministry, especially in relation to Israel. He is the anointed one, the appointed one that was expected from Old Testament to be God's Messiah. And he becomes Jesus Christ, the Lord. And the Lord speaks of his royal authority. His saving activity, his essential deity, his functional ministry, his royal authority, and his revelation will ultimately capstone it. He is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. This set of titles and what they represent, men and women, this is what separates Christianity from all the other isms and religions of the world. Who is Jesus is the most important question you can answer. Is he the one who can save? Is he the son of God? Is he the fulfillment of all that God promised? And is he the one whom God has made both Lord and Christ as we saw back in chapters two and three? He is the Lord of the church, the head of the church. And he's building his church in spite of the opposition and controversies. Principle number two, questions of credibility are to be expected That's normal life, Jesus promised it, and and provide incredible opportunities for witness. In verses 13, 21, and 26, we see questions by Ananias, fears by uh, uh, the disciples, doubts by the other disciples, uh, misunderstanding by the Jews in the synagogue. And as we heard last week, Ananias was the first reluctant one, but God said, Ananias, don't stop here. Let me tell you what I want you to do with him. In Damascus, the Jews were questioning his previous conduct of persecution. In Jerusalem, the believing disciples were fearful and doubtful. In Damascus, God used Ananias to authenticate Saul's conversion. In Jerusalem, God used Barnabas to intervene and authenticate him with the believing community there. We have to remember that some of those put to death by Saul or imprisoned by Saul were husbands and wives, children, parents, close friends of those early Christians. It's no wonder the feelings of fear or questions of credibility. Some of you in this room and some of you listening, whom we welcome by technology, 
Some of you, when you came to Christ, there were big questions. Has he got religion? Has she got religion? Is this real? Is this going to last? What in the world happened to you? Our international students tell us because it's such a, a, a counter move in those cultures of Islam and Hinduism and other things like that. When a person comes to Christ, it is a radical decision that separates them from their heritage at times, from their history at times, from their families at times. It's no wonder there's questions of credibility. Think of the miraculous turnaround in Saul's life. From being a persecutor to being a preacher, from an antagonist to an apostle, the hunted now becomes the hunted. The hunter becomes the hunted. From one who needed papers by the high priest to extradite these people back to Jerusalem, Paul ultimately becomes the writer of epistles that get sent through the Mediterranean world to pastors and churches. What a phenomenal change. Number four, differing context will require differing approaches in declaring and defending the faith. I just want to show you that there's words like proclaiming, confounding, proving, preaching, disputing. There's times that debate is necessary. There's times when argumentation in the right way, not being argumentative, but defending the faith and presenting the faith and, 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 and wrestling with the faith. In the book of Acts, if you just read through it, a study of it, there are all kinds of terms that come under the umbrella of witnessing for Christ. Sometimes it's laying out a logical argument, at other times it's simply answering a question. Uh, these are just a variety of terms, a variety of approaches to defend and declare the faith. Number four, God is sovereign and can be trusted to give wisdom as to when to stand firm or when to escape. There are times when God miraculously intervenes and delivers his people. Like Peter and John out of prison, Paul and Silas, we'll see it in chapter 16. But there are times when God allows persecution and even a violent death like Stephen in Acts 6, and we'll see it in, with James in Acts 12. It's a mystery as to why God delivers some and allows others to die a martyr's death. There's times when God uses natural means of escape, like a basket you know, being let down, or like brothers you know, in Jerusalem whisking him off. Saul through the wall, and some other brothers. Sometimes God will just want you to escape and move on. And the lyrics of that old, not so gospel hymn, you gotta know when to hold them. You gotta know when to fold them. You gotta know when to uh, hold them, you gotta know when to fold them. You gotta know when to walk away and know when to run. There are times when escape is the will of God, but not always. And one of the things we see in the book of Acts is the variety of how God in his sovereignty may use a martyr's death to blow open the doors of the gospel. You, you think of what happened with uh, the, the missionaries and the Aka Indians in South America, with what happened when Saul started persecuting, the church spread and built in the book of Acts. God is so sovereign in what he's doing. And that leads me finally to a recurring pattern. We're just gonna mention it. We're not gonna go through all the verses but look at verse, uh, verse uh, 31 of chapter 9. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. Notice, in the midst of all of that opposition and question, the church was at peace because they were trusting in Christ. They're walking in the fear of the Lord 
and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And would you say the last two words with me? It what? Multiplied. I've given you a, a whole string of passages in your notes. 931 is sort of the capstone of this section here because it, we now see the gospel from Jerusalem going to Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. The whole region has now been evangelized to a point and the church is growing and it's multiplying, not just adding. But if you go back through all of those passages, you'll find this is a subliminal theme through the book of Acts. Christ is building his church. It's growing and it's multiplying based on how they receive the word, how they believe in Christ, and how they give themselves to the ministry. I want to give you an example of effective witness. It's, here's your homework. I want you to go on YouTube, and I know this is not going to be popular for some of you who went to UT, but I want you to look up Oklahoma softball team shocks the world. I want you to watch that because you're going to see a series of testimonies by three of the players and the coach sitting there of what Jesus Christ has done in their lives. It was one of the most bold and effective testimonies for Christ. That little piece has had over a, a half a million hits. And one of those players, who's named Elisa Brito, used the illustration I want to finish with today. And that is uh, her faith in Christ and evidently a number of those players, the core of that team are believers in Christ and have rallied together. And this isn't our home, we're just passing through. This is just a game, our home is in heaven. We can have joy, not happiness. Happiness, they said, is temporary. It's, it's dependent on circumstances. Joy is given by the Lord. But Elisa said this, we've had what's called an eyes up, an eyes up illustration to keep our eyes on Christ, knowing that he is the ultimate reason that he allows us to do what we do in spite of winning or losing. Now they happen to have done really well, but fixing their eyes on Christ to keep loving one another and giving glory to God. Would you do me a favor, these last two points, walking in the fear of the Lord, in the comfort of the Spirit, the nexus between following Christ and then needing the comfort when things that are tough happen will give you and me a sense of eyes up. Watch that video. Listen to their testimony. And if you haven't yet trusted Jesus Christ, do that because that's first step. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it's amazing what your son has promised. It's amazing in the midst of all of the uh, multiple sections of this book that show the controversy and the opposition. That's a thread, but the other thread is uh, you're adding and you're building and you're multiplying and people are coming to Christ and people are growing. Would you give us that incredible ability to see with the eyes of faith, the fear of the Lord, would you allow us to trust you? And Father, if there be one that doesn't yet know you as their personal Savior, listening to this, would they imitate the faith of Saul? Would they imitate the faith of Alyssa Brito? Would they find their ultimate source of joy and comfort and a rightful, reverent respect for you? and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. 
We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.